Hello and welcome to Arrest All Mimics. My name is Ben Tallon. This is the Creative Innovation Podcast. Hello, how are you doing? Are you well? Thank you for listening and thank you for the magnificent feedback on the last episode on pricing creativity. Go back and check that out if you already haven't because you need to get them pennies in order and we need to know how to quote and the rest of it and licenses and contracts and all the bollocks that we don't want to deal with. But there we are. The weather this week is nutritious. We're talking digital nutrition with Moodrise founder Michael Phillips Moskowitz and we will get to that shortly. It's all about the digital content we consume and the way it makes us feel. Um, Big topic, but we're going to refine in and have a look at Moodrise, a new app by Michael, former global chief curator of eBay. Uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, we'll get to that shortly. A quick thank you for my sponsors who keep this show free. Illustrationweb.com, fantastic illustration and animation agency providing all kinds of visual communication across the board from lettering specialists to mural artists to fashion illustrators to live artists, you name it, they've got it all going on and they've got a fantastic news section on the website that takes you behind the curtain in the world of illustration and what's going on with all those lovely clients. So go and check those guys out. Founding sponsors still here today. Thank you very much. Illustrationweb.com, heartinternet.co.uk, fantastic digital and tech sponsor, providing SEO advice, social media advice, domain names, hosting all the good stuff that you need to get your website recognised on, I was going to say eBay, on Google, <laughs> uh, on any search engines, whatever it is you're doing, go and check those guys out at internet.co.uk. I would give you the usual digital tip this episode, but Michael's going to do that for us because we're getting into the content we consume and the way it makes us feel. So that's going to be one big episode's worth of tips. So thank you to at internet.co.uk, foilco.co.uk, providing fantastic shiny beautiful stuff for your design work Foilco has been servicing the graphics industry for over 30 years offering the largest range of hot stamping foils in all sectors I've worked with Foilco I've got friends at Foilco they're great guys and they walk you through the process to make it less intimidating because not many people know a great deal about the foil that we see all around us but it's really not that complex and these guys make it delightfully easy they're great people to work with so go and check them out if you need any foiling on your design work anytime soon Last but very not least, the Association of Illustrators, the AOI.com, doing great work for the illustration industry. We're featured quite heavily on last week's pricing creativity episode. Um, they've got a whole new pricing calculator and a campaign about getting illustrators stronger in the business sense, getting everyone earning better, pricing better, the rest of it coming up very soon. So watch out for their stuff, the AOI.com. Exciting times ahead for those guys. So let's get into it. Digital nutrition. Bit of a surprise episode. There's going to be a little break after this one up until the 22nd of April. There's been a flurry of episodes recently, including this one. It's always a busy time of year with people got exciting things going on. So we've got to jump on these time sensitive opportunities. So apologies if it's been thick and fast, if it's been too much to catch up with. But now is your chance because there's going to be a little three week gap after this episode. So I hope you enjoyed the pricing episode. Um, I was nervous putting it out because it was such a ginormous topic to try and cover with any kind of efficiency. But I wanted to try and give a good balance of Blair Enns's uh, feature interview about value-based pricing. And my own takeaway tips from 10 years in this industry and, and kind of where to start and how to price and the personal variables... 
and the common the common tools that we use to price right across the board, no matter if you're a designer, illustrator, photographer, whatever it is you're pricing, whatever kind of creativity. So thank you. It seemed to be overwhelmingly positive. People enjoyed the show, said it was very, very useful, lots to take away. So um appreciate the feedback. Thank you. Please do keep it coming at Arrest All Mimics. You can go back and check out any previous episode over 130 now on the archive over at soundcloud.com forward slash arrest all mimics or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, Podbay, Stitcher, it's all going on. Go and check it out. Download from wherever you see fit. So thank you for that. Got some awesome episodes coming up. We've got O Street in Glasgow coming up. Got Dominic Byron, um, wonderful digital illustrator. She's coming up very soon too. It's all going on. We've got loads. I could sit here all day telling you about what's coming, but let's talk about what's now. Michael Phillips Moskowitz is founder of Moodrise. So Moodrise is a, a beautiful tool, a brand new app that's just come out. We're going to get into the whys and the where's and how he developed that, but a little bit of background. He was the founder and chief executive officer of Bureau of Trade. Um, he was then executive in residence at Foundation Capital. Prior to joining Foundation, he served as eBay's global chief curator. So Michael's going to take us through his own personal journey and struggles with mental health and how he arrived at the point of creating Moodrise and why it took him so long to get here via the Harvard, the Harvard Kennedy School and why that turned things around for him. Um, Michael's a super intelligent, lovely, lovely guy, and he was named in the top 100 creatives in business by Fast Company, which is quite the accolade. Um, and I hope you can understand why you need to talk to him on this episode. He's been profiled in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, CNBC, as well as Tech and Art World Press. So, what is Moodrise? They describe it better than I ever could. How does it work? Moodrise delivers a bright constellation of curated images, video and audio to positively and specifically impact brain chemistry and progressively elevate your mood. We pair proven science with the power of storytelling to help you feel better. They call this digital nutrition. Think of it as a vital supplement to your existing digital diet. Everything you see or hear on Moodrise is positive and purposeful and uniquely designed to boost your sense of well-being. Why now? Because we're living in the midst of a global mental health crisis with more than 300 million people actively suffering from clinical depression and hundreds of millions more impacted by mild and moderate symptoms of anxiety. Rather than ditch our phones entirely, we're developing a suite of products to intelligently leverage technology to support and nourish individual emotional needs, improve mental health, strengthen resilience and elevate well-being. That's our mission. Is Moodrise for you? It is. That's what they say, not me. <laughs> but I can agree, it sounds awesome. We all want to live our best lives and we really do deserve to feel good, but our team realise that the wellness journey can often be tough, tedious and time-consuming. In many cases, it can be expensive, but we won't ever change an arm or a leg and we aren't making painful changes to our lifestyle. Our narrow goal is to reduce distress and suffering, put a smile on your face and progressively improve your experience here on planet Earth. Is it really that easy? Yes. Remember, not everything that feels good has to be bad for you, and not everything that's truly good for you works instantaneously. Sometimes the very best things take a little bit of time to deliver their full benefits. That's Moodrise. Don't believe us, give it a shot. Try Moodrise for yourself. Um, so, why did I want to feature this? Because as creatives, we spend a hell of a lot of time on the internet digesting content. That's anything from sitting in a cafe, listening to music as we work, 
our email content, the way that might stress us out from one email to the next. Maybe it's a pedantic client, maybe it's a nice client who is too nice for their own good, doesn't give us enough details and just want us to talk about their lives. There's so much going on with the content we digest now, what's in our earbuds, what's on our laptops, what's on our phones, what's going on after we supposedly finish work, we've got a client emailing us in the night time. It goes on because we work globally now for American clients, Australian clients, Asian clients, African clients, it's happening all around us and I don't know about you but I find myself getting to the end of the day sometimes and just not wanting to look at my phone and as a side effect of that I miss maybe better content with you know my, my friends my family text messages pictures of loved ones whatever's going on it's this big conflicted thing that we have and as Michael's going to explain we are hitting a, a period of time where we're probably going to look back on this and call it peak content the height of our consumption of digital media and it's kind of worrying because Well, from the research for this episode, it seems that science cannot keep up with the sheer amount of content we are consuming, and we don't know the long-term impacts and repercussions of that, and we may live to regret it in some ways. So Michael's going to take us through his own journey. He's going to talk about why Moodrise exists, how he came to arrive there. We're going to get into the science of, of what we're consuming and the effect it has on our mood. It's a really interesting, quite scientific, psychological episode. So get us your thoughts over on Arrest on the Mix on social media. Um, Michael sells it a lot better than I do. He's going to tell you all about this stuff. And, you know, it's. I'm interested in how everyone else feels because I'm still getting to grips with the way that I use the internet. For the, oh, God, I mean, all day, most days now for my work. And for the most part, there's many upsides to that you know the fact that i can work with clients overseas um, i can work all around the world for japanese clients american clients that's a beautiful thing but what's the subconscious impact of this stuff what is the the long-term repercussions on my brain i don't know we don't know michael phillips moskowitz doesn't know just yet but mood rise is one of the many steps he's taking to try and work with that and as as he'll describe you know there are warnings on fag packets we know what happens if we eat a bad diet? We know what happens if we booze too much, but do we know what happens if we go online too much? And the answer is no. Um, but Moodrise is is a great way of helping that, an antithesis almost. I could bang on all day trying to articulate it. I'm going to fail. <laughs> so I will let him tell you. Get your feedback over, like I said, at Arrest on the Mix. Drop us a little review if you get a chance on iTunes. Very much appreciated. Um, and here you have it, my conversation with Moodrise founder Michael Phillips Moskowitz. Look, I think there's two, there are the three major crises of our era, right? Or I say four. One is around climate change. I don't care what the culprit is. I don't need to find a potent explanatory device. It is an issue regardless of which side of the uh, dubious field you fall on. The second is a crisis in identity, right? And that's not something we can easily resolve mm-hmm. or endeavor to address without you know having a legitimate discussion about psychology and the 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 perils of secular life the third is a crisis of accountability and the systems that we've erected aren't as efficient or as as representative of the public will as they once were Mm -hmm. and the fourth is mental health yep these are all huge issues yeah i decided to focus on one because the other three are just vastly too complex to even endeavor to resolve so I yeah. focus on one of the major four. So, well, background. I mean, I, I love to hear about people's childhoods and, and earliest forms of creativity. Well, what's your story? Well, I I don't think I knew exactly what the problem was at the time, but 
uh, I distinctly recall going to my cousin's wedding when I was 11 years old, and I, I worshipped him, I venerated this guy. And I was terribly upset. I was inconsolable that he wasn't paying me a bit more attention. And a photographer approached me and said, you're a really over-emotional kid. You must be an artist. And from that day, I forswore use of paint, pad, and pencil. Never again. And uh, that certainly wasn't, a, in retrospect, the right answer or the right decision. But, you know, I had a hard time growing up. I was, uh, I was raised in Palo Alto, California. I knew something was somehow always an ill fit. And unwittingly, I authored... An unceremonious departure. You know, at 14, I was sent around to a variety of punitive programs, each harder than the one prior. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this certainly informs the story of why we, you know, we're leaving this company. I mean, I spent seven and a half months hospitalized in a lockdown facility between 14 and 15. And then I was sent to uh, the remote wilderness in uh, Idaho for absolutely no reason. And then I spent the better part of three months that were actually quite uh, bucolic and placid and uh, energizing in remote Montana, where I would have stayed, but instead I was sent to a punitive boarding school in Maine that met all seven of Hannah, uh, Hannah Arendt's criteria for a totalitarian regime. It was an unpleasant place, to say the least. And then these you know, perambulations or migrations across the planet sort of continued thereafter. I went to college in New York, did a Middle East specialization year at Hebrew U in Jerusalem, came back to New York, uh, had my first job at a college at a Washington-based think tank because I was singularly passionate about that region at the time. Um, went to graduate school here in the United Kingdom at, at the LSE, went back to Stanford to work for a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize on issues pertaining to uh, Iraq and the lead-up to the war, and then prospects for post-rehabilitation in Afghanistan. And so I, I, it's, it's hard to tell you where home really is, but I feel, I suppose, as, as comfortable here in London as I do anywhere else. Wow. So that's, wow, that's, that's quite the journey. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've made one grave error. You know, there's nothing a matter with being a nomad, but nomads are deeply interdependent people. They're just not specifically tethered to one place. And I need to endeavor to do a better job, not of staying, you know, meaningfully connected to the people that I love and, and cherish, but of having a challenging and, and, and supportive community, both in and outside of work. I feel enormously blessed and, and grateful for having such a talented team working on Mood Rise. Um, but I think I need to do a slightly better job of having some uh, crudely adumbrated or roughly sketched version of a social life outside of work. I haven't quite cracked that one yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, I mean, a lot of the people I, t- I speak to, there's so many overlaps between, you know, they're very passionate about what they end up doing for a living. Um, is that something of, you know, I, mean, I guess that would go without saying that. Is that the case with you? Yeah, I mean, I think the ultimate success, uh, the ultimate arbiter of success for entrepreneurs isn't passion, it's pathology. Are you sicker than the next person, right? What is your threshold? Uh, you have to have an exceedingly high threshold of tolerance for pain and suffering and isolation, but I think there also need to be smarter steps. It doesn't just have to be, you know, there, there is, it, that's not the dependent variable. Success isn't equated with sacrifice. But if you're going to be on this journey, and it's a hard one, it's arduous, Mm. Uh, you have to be unequivocally clear about the vision and the merit of what you're doing. You have to be, you know, unalterably convinced that your path uh, is both an opportunistic one, right, and aligned with virtue, or at least driven by, I think, uh, legitimate values. And um, you know, what, what was the one thing that I found hauntingly? I wouldn't say hauntingly. The one thing I'm sometimes reminded of is that it's all fine 
and well to try and radically scale a ladder. You just have to make goddamn good and certain that it's leaning against the right wall. And I think that with this business, it took me an awfully long time. But this whole mission, it took me a long time to find it. You know, I mean, I had the good fortune of exiting my last company to eBay, and I spent several years there working as a global chief curator and, and, and advising other startups very widely and spending a bit of time in the venture landscape as an EIR, uh, entrepreneur in residence, and also as an advisor. But it was a lot of stumbling around until being able, mercifully, finally, to identify this opportunity, which I have to sort of confess and admit may have been staring me in the face the whole time mm. but i had to do a lot of wandering before eliminating all that psychic noise and distraction to focus on what mattered most and that took me a while probably longer than i care to admit at what point did you start to pick up the thread so to speak of this uh, of mood rise so i left ebay in 2016 and i spent a bit of time in california and in new york working closely with several venture outfits and then had an idea that I thought had real merit. I, think my, I thought it was early then. It's still too early now, maybe. I wondered, what, is, what would it look like if we created a neo-monastic order? Right? So draw a target uh, with a diameter of about 90 miles around any of the major three cities in the United States, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. If you were able to drive or you know, convey yourself courtesy of a train out into the countryside, what would it look like? Uh, and what purpose would it serve? I, I don't think that it's addressing sort of a cavity in the landscape concerning third space. I think that all the world's major confessional orders have a monastic tradition. And I think it, is, it plays a vital role in helping to reset, renew, restore the soul and psyche. And it's conspicuously absent from contemporary life, especially for people that lead a mostly secular existence. And so I thought, as a, you know, the visual grammar of the place was interesting. I thought that the, the ambition was one that had real and undeniable merit. The challenge was, and this is what I couldn't sort out or fix at the time, I wasn't convinced that you could be successful without either uh, a visionary leader, meaning sort of a guru, like a religious kind of figure. So uh, somebody that you, that you, you know, singularly worshipped in a sense or trusted or... Um, uh, a piece of literature to cohere, you know, as a system of belief. Like I didn't want to create a, a, a summit series. That was the last thing I wanted to do. It needed to have uh, considerably greater scaffolding, intellectual heft, and real demonstrable value. I, I, don't, I didn't think I could get there by just creating sort of a hybridized or a newfangled hotel and living experience. It had to be something more. And so after spending several months, I was quite dispirited. And a two-week journey, you know, in a manner hauntingly reminiscent of Gilligan, turned into two months, two and a half months of wandering around the planet, unable to sort of piece back the thread. And then, like a deus ex machina, to resolve the plot out of nowhere, this opportunity at Harvard materialized, which was the chance to be the first ever entrepreneur in residence at the Kennedy School. Mm. And I have to confess, when they first approached me, I was like, what the hell am I going to do at the Kennedy School? I hadn't thought about anything of that variety in almost two decades. And the guy said, why don't you just go home and think about it? And then, you know, like, like Athena jumping out of Zeus's skull, who had this outpouring of ideas, and it turned out to be one of the greatest opportunities of my life, and I'm infinitely, permanently in their debt. Um, and when I was there, in addition to working with students and getting back to writing and uh, research about which, you know, that practice uh, is a normally, it was always enormously gratifying. I, I didn't realize until doing it again how much I missed it. Mm. And what I discovered was, um, and the premise at the beginning was, what do the world's biggest brands and businesses all have in common that might be applicable to public policy or civil society? And when I started to take a look, I identified three variables. 
One, psychopharmacology. The world's biggest brands and businesses tend to traffic in neurotransmitters uniquely to their own advantage. For, for Facebook, you know, they've been behaving like cocaine cowboys for the better part of the last decade, mm-hmm. and their drug of choice is dopamine. You know, for Starbucks, is it really a, a recognizable branded uh, coffee empire, or is it just the world's least stigmatized and most popular drug corporation, which happens to be caffeine, which creates a kaleidoscope of different physical and emotional results and dividends. So that was one. One was psychopharmacology. Second variable, behavioral ravines. You know, I came from a world of commerce. That's in general, and again, I'm speaking in gross sweeping generalizations, but commerce is mostly uh, fierce competition for a purchase decision a month. That's a terrible business. I don't care how big Amazon is or how big eBay is. That's a tough, uh, that's an uphill battle. Uh, if you take a look at the food business, that can be as few as 21 purchase decisions a week, or if you're including snacks, 35 per- purchase decisions a week. It's better, you know, but shipping physical product and doing it uh, uh, given time constraints, pricing challenges, still tough. Cigarettes were interesting, uh, profoundly unethical, and I wanted nothing to do with tobacco, but that's 20 purchase decisions a day. If someone is a relatively moderate smoker, up to 30, like Yitzhak Rabin, mm-hmm. would crush cigarettes and, you know, during wartime. You know what killed him? Not tobacco, but it's hardly the point. Um, when I move up that food chain, you know, think about messaging. It's, that can be 200 touch points every single day, regardless of income level, age, uh, gender, social setting. It's remarkable. It, it, it's only competition or other biological imperatives like breathing. That's interesting. That was the second. Here's the third. If you take a look at Walt Disney's playbook, uh, John Lasseter, the founder, co-founder of Pixar, Steve Jobs, or Jim Henson, they were uniquely able and gifted not just to tell stories, but to identify with the six-year-old within all of us, right? They can excite or alight a childlike sense of wonder and awe. And if you can do that, in addition to the other two, holy cow, that's a huge opportunity. So what might that look like as a, I'll back up. I said, if I can use those as evaluative criteria or as a measurement tool, you know, on you know, into how should I train my sights? Looking out into the world, like what, where does real change, like what, what urgently needs to be addressed? And I'd say that at first, selfishly, I thought about mental health because I've struggled with it mightily my whole life. You know, I've had bipolar too. Uh, probably undiagnosed when I was 14 and properly diagnosed in my mid-20s. But it's been uh, hard to be medicated in periods and then unmedicated, to be poorly medicated or improperly medicated or, you know, white-knuckling it with no... Um, psychopharmacological support of all. I know what it means to be in therapy and out. I know what it means to be hospitalized and free. And it took me a long time to find and strike the right balance, including, you know, periods of using drugs and alcohol to cope Mm. until finally, you know, mercifully jettisoning that as both as a social instrument and as a coping device about eight years ago. But it was a long period of time. And 12 months ago, you know, given greater awareness about and around uh, mental health issues, both in the United Kingdom and in the States. You know, here, one in four Britons are going to experience a mental health issue this year, and the States is one in five. The numbers are rumored to be considerably higher elsewhere in the developing world. We've got to do something about it. A hundred percent, and it's a real personal passion, too. Um, and as someone who's spent their life, again, I, mean, I always wonder about the whole creativity thing, that is artistic expression. Am I coping, or is it my way of processing the world i I don't know i mean it it helps me to be happy that's what matters but not everyone has that all the sense of belonging that comes from that or even the space to explore 
you know, creative inclinations. I wonder do you think, your role uh, your role at the Kennedy School would you, it's was that an opportunity to I don't know get off the hamster wheel so to speak um, that uh, allowed you to explore the things we just talked about. I th- I, it, it, it was a blessing in so many ways, right? I think my self esteem was you know had taken a real beating back then, and um, I didn't really know what to do next. I knew that I needed to start another company. It wasn't clear how or with whom. Or where it might be, um, you know. I was watching. Uh, you know, everyone has seen a life of pie. They might have mixed opinions about it last night. But I was, you know, I could really identify with being, you know, cast out under the tall seas and you know, thrown from post to pillar. I didn't. I don't know that I felt like I was keeping the close quarters of, of a tiger that wanted to do me in. <laughs> uh, the circumstances were grim. And then I remember when he was, you know, delivered unto, or you know. So, he awoke one morning and sitting before him, you know, was some small expanse of land and he, you know, was able to sort of slake his thirst and feed himself and recover temporarily only to discover that he couldn't remain there indefinitely. I'd say that was sort of my experience at Harvard, except they were so good to me and so generous and so kind and so collaborative. And that just hadn't been my experience in business or in tech in quite a while. Right. I think I had a lot of, you know, when I look back on the things I did right at eBay, I think that I cared deeply what I did wrong. I cared too much. I didn't have the maturity to get more done, more collaboratively and more successfully. And it wasn't because, and I think there was a common misconception that I was interested in me. It wasn't me. I I wanted to make progress. And there are smart ways of doing it when you are willing to forego credit and when you're willing to use, I'd call it, uh, not radical progressive, radical patience as a tool or as a technique. And I just didn't have it at the time. Maybe I was too young. I was too... uh, I was impatient to an enormously problematic degree. And so I think Harvard was a chance to not just take a breather, but to adopt a new methodological approach. It was a chance to develop a series, not one, but a series of new mental models. And I think one of the other things that irrevocably altered the landscape, both for me and for many other people, was the outcome of the election, which I, I didn't foresee or predict. And it was not with steely conviction, but sort of armed with the sense that things just generally weren't, directionally they weren't heading where I wanted them to, that I decided to leave the States and take up residence here in the United Kingdom instead. Uh, And that turned out to maybe be the best thing for me in ways that even at the time I couldn't have predicted. Mm. It's, yeah, God, I mean, yeah, not to get political, but this is one of many things in the world right now that's troubling people, I think, and um, people of rational mind who, you know, I would consider good people are just perplexed with what's going on. Um, and this, you know, this can't be good. And we're exposed to it so much now sure. you know, online. And just, the, the, I mean, this is going to bring us to, you know, the, the whole, the peak content thing, which we, I was reading this in one of the articles you were a part of. I think it was on Harvard. Was it Harvard, one of the, the websites? It was a fantastic article anyway about about the work you're doing. Oh, well, we, well, look, we've, we've tried, we've been operating on several uh, parallel tracks. There are pieces that we've been publishing in, in papers, including one that's going to be coming out in the next several days, either in the Times or in the Washington Post, which is this notion of uh, issuing a clarion call for a new Hippocratic oath for the Silicon Valley, right? That we need to hold ourselves accountable to a, an entirely different and considerably higher standard than anything we've actively or openly contemplated to date. And that's a piece that I can probably talk about a considerably greater length once it comes out. The prior three were in, uh, across a variety of titles, but one was about the role and the need for digital nutrition. 
Another was, uh, you know, beginning to sort of identify what the elements are, you know, between, because it's a combination of digital hygiene, knowing when to partake in tech, knowing when to abstain, digital literacy, understanding what the contents are of our content. Uh, and then digital nutrition is specific provisions of digital material that can have a demonstrably positive impact on mood. And I think this has to become part of a life practice. I don't, I'm not interested in behavior change. Behavior change is it's tough, it's challenging, and recidivism rates are exceedingly high. But I do want people to develop a new awareness. Working in service of what I would call uh, attunement, that's not my term, that's the one belonging to Dr. Carrie Barron. Um, you could also call it emotional resilience. And that isn't easy. I mean, I, what I'm joking, I, I, I don't want to sound indelicate, but you know, I, I'm sometimes reminded of Lenin who said that you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. I happen to be religious, but not everyone is. What troubles me is that, you know, with the disappearing uh, conventions around the practice of faith, a lot of people have been turning to increasingly dramatic and dangerous tools like opiates to cope. And we see where that's arrived us in the States, right? You know, I mean, U.S. drug policy is problematic, impoverished, sclerotic, arthritic. It shouldn't be championed as a model to follow. And so I don't want, you know, the approach to digital drugs, you can call it, or new digital material to be modeled after U.S. drug policy, far from it. I want it to be modeled after the, the huge strides and the meaningful gains we've made in terms of awareness around food and its impact on and over not just physical health, but mental well-being, too. And we need to apply some of those same systems and apply some of those same principles and sort of re-outfit those same approaches and assign them to the digital sphere. Because here was our belief, and I think it's one that's echoed by uh, both clergy and clinicians alike, that the foundational elements of human health and happiness are comprised of diet, sleep, exercise, interpersonal relationships, and vocation, or what you could call purpose. And that last one's not easy, certainly not now. But we believe there's a sixth, because of the average person today, at least in the West, is consuming an estimated 12 hours and seven minutes of digital assets, willfully or otherwise, right? Because when you sit in a cafe, they're playing music. That still counts, even if you didn't choose or cue it. It's, it's clearly having an impact on and over the way that we feel. So what are we going to do about it, right? It, it factors prominently in the contemporary human experience. And yet we haven't thought carefully about uh, how to control it. And so I, I have drawn the connection between peak tobacco in 1964, right? 564 billion cigarettes were consumed, and it would take 30 years of smoking-related illnesses and disease and public advocacy before people changed course. And still, 35 million Americans still smoke. I would argue that 2018 and 2019, maybe 2020, will someday represent, in retrospect, peak content. And we need to be, you know, maybe we can, you know, emancipate ourselves from the yoke of digital slavery by making smarter decisions that actually improve human health and health and human health and outcomes over time. But we have to treat it with a new degree, I think, of, uh, of of a, we need to develop new awarenesses, and that's where Mood Rise is trying to make a difference in a modest way. Mm. And I think it's fun having done read up on Mood Rise. It's really quite um, intriguing, and then you know, doing the research for this, the articles that you wrote were fascinating to me, and it, and it really well articulated things that I've started to almost awaken to myself recently. As I would consider myself a heavy user because I'm, I'm an illustrator by trade. And I do this yeah. podcast around my illustration, and I'm just I'm just all around passionate about creativity. I do a lot of writing, also, yeah. and just recently, you know, I've started to notice the fact that whether it's a wired mind at night or 
a feeling of being jaded by by the the sheer amount of things I would have to consume for my job each day. You know, I find myself mm-hmm. putting my phone face down upon the shelf and don't want to look at the thing in the evening. Um, you know, I end up missing calls from friends and only getting back the next day, and that's not healthy. And and again, it's this curatorial approach to to our use of it. So this is quite new to me. But then the reaction is to think, oh my god, imagine I grew up with this stuff, which of course sure. so many a whole generation is, and it's really quite unadulterated, which I guess brings in you know, uh, the whole principles behind Mood Rise and the need to understand and rectify this? Well, I think part of the, look, I I agree wholeheartedly and can intimately identify with your experience with technology. It seems eerily reminiscent of my own. But I'm starting to approach it, again, I think the notion is what kind of awareness can I actively practice that's going to change the quality of my life from day to day? And so the, the, the minor shifts, again, you know, what I'm not pledging to deliver or promising that we can provide is the equivalent yet of a truly digital drug. We're getting there. I want to explain what I mean. The, the five or six most powerful mood-altering drugs and chemicals on the planet don't need to be ingested. They already exist in your brain and your body. You know, GABA is what scientists strongly correlate with sensations of serenity and calm. Acetylcholine is often correlated strongly with concentration and focus and learning new tasks. Dopamine is for self-confidence and reward. Oxytocin is the love and bonding molecule. Endorphins raise what we interpret to be energy levels. And it still isn't encompassing of all of them, but those are sort of the primary ones in which we're trying to trade and teach uh, new awarenesses. And what I have found is that one, um, mood is a fluid thing. And it's easier to control and to modify and to optimize when I have a sense of what really is going on in my body and in my brain from moment to moment. Not, not, not with scientific specificity, but with a new generalized awareness. That's, that's one piece of it. The other is that we're endeavoring to create a new uh, digital nutrition labeling system so people can begin to use it as a reference the same way that they can make more informed decisions when they go to Tesco's or Boots. Know, to buy snacks or foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. Let's at least understand, you know, like when I was growing up, they were only beginning to inculcate the virtues of the food pyramid. Carbohydrates, fats, proteins. And now you find it on the back of every consumer packaged food product. You didn't 30 years ago, not quite as reliably or as consistently. And it's strange because in the realm of broadcast content, we're accustomed to seeing on HBO or on Showtime or on Netflix uh, letter-based rating systems, not just G, PG, PG-13, no, I mean AL for adult language, AC for adult content, N for nudity, V for violence. Those are reference points. I can decide that I want to continue to watch or not. Well, why can't we go a step further and be more conspicuous about the relative benefits of this program and in time allow you to sort of not mix and match, that isn't the goal, but to have some generalized awareness of what's going into your eyes and what's going into your ears and to begin to make more informed personal decisions about how to optimize your health in relation to the content that you consume. I, th- I think it's really, really fascinating and, and, and so important. I, I see on a day-to-day basis many positive and negative effects. You know, On one hand, just for my own personal circumstances, I'm able to work with dream clients all over the world, You know, which mm-hmm. guy, I, I talk to guys in the same industry who've been doing this 20 years and just... And just are constantly awed by about just what wasn't there at the advent of their careers. Uh, on the fl- on the flip side, you know, I, it kind of I see people getting down on their luck, or maybe not even aware of it, but feeling down because 
they misperceive the lives of others as being this rosy, beautiful thing because that's the way it's curated. So I guess in that instance, you know, that this is, um, it's really amazing that there's this quantifiable, well, you know, that this is going to bring a quantifiable way of, of people actually knowing that and understanding the science behind why that makes them feel a certain way. I think it's really needed. Well, listen, we still have a long way to go. You know, I think it's vitally important to set expectations. You know, we have three principles that govern all of our activity. One, we have to be science first. We have to be accountable for you know, the decisions that we make. And that's a, that, that's a sacred and inviolable principle. Two, we have to be science friendly. That means we have to, like, I, I'm not a trained, uh, <laughs> given the number of years I've spent in psychotherapy, I probably should have a PhD, but I, I'm not a trained clinician and I'm not a trained uh neuroscientist and so we have to not just rely on the experts in the field we have to translate it for people not just like me but for, for everyone because i'm doing it every day we have to translate it for members of the general public to make it easy to digest mm-hmm. and the third principle which i'd say is rarely applied to uh, rocket ship stories or unicorn ventures in the valley the future is watching behave accordingly right we can't act uh with impunity, the way that we've often seen. Um, I, I don't need to retell the stories of some of the, uh, the more problematic players, but I think we're all keenly aware that something does need to shift and change. And so what does that mean for us? It means that more work still needs to be done in the field in order to uh, substantiate some of these correlations and claims. And I'll give you an example. I can't tell you yet levels of dopamine that are released into your system based on very specific content types. It's very tough. Science isn't there yet. I can't yet tell you definitively what your GABA levels are in terms of whether they rise or decrease with the exposure to specific sound sets, like the sound of a river brook running or crickets at nighttime in nature. We know that there's a relationship between the two, but it's much easier to measure uh, impact on mood uh, vis-a-vis nicotine levels than it is uh, fault or courtesy of these other neurotransmitters. We will get there, but it's going to take more time, more resource, and more research. This is only really, you know, so that we're operating at the edge of the frontier, which is very promising. But there's a lot of work that remains to be done. And when I think about you and your illustration practice, I'm reminded of Agnes Martin, right? She very famously suffered from schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And her art practice became her coping technique. These grids were a way of sort of controlling the voices. I don't want to do the story any injustice. Again, I confess and admit and concede this is a general summary. But she was lucky that she found a way of uh, attaining or achieving uh, control over these demons of, of, of a sort, right? Not everyone has been that lucky. I mean, when I walk around London every single day and I see people that are begging for change on the street, there's very little separating me from them other than one or two instances in terms of good fortune. I am them and they are me. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what I've found in the last couple of years is that as my mood dips, and very often plummets, you know, influenced by any number of factors, the goal isn't to think more about me and to help me cope. It's almost a signal that I need to be thinking about someone else. And the challenge with most of these implements of technology is that it's forcing me to think about me. The world doesn't need more me. <laughs> it needs a hell of a lot more we. And so we're, we're, we're struggling mightily to figure out how this product isn't going to succeed or fail based on our ability to deliver behavior change. No, but just subtle, simple, meaningful, contextual reminders that there are ways of 
safely and reliably changing your mood state in a manner that can benefit not just you, but the people around you. And maybe, you know, we can sort of disguise the medicine in healthier, happier behaviors. Mm. And, and would I be accurate in saying the way I read this now is that, of course, mood rise is going to be a, a channel, a go-to place to work with these behaviors and the way we respond to digital content, but actually something that then can then bleed out into the physical environment, the way we lead our lives at large. Uh, it's a piece of it. What I, I would describe it in the following way like, that, you know, I wondered a year ago, what are we now? April, a little over a year ago. Uh, what would it look like if Kenzo, uh, <laughs> uh, if there was a coup at Pfizer and Kenzo seized control, what would that look like? What would their intravenous therapy program emerge into? What would oral-based medications look like, uh, either at the counter or, or by prescription only? What would ointments feel like? What would topical? How would topical medicine change? And I thought of the, the, the place to start was in the, you know, in the category that I knew better, which is pure digital. What would it look like if we could use the chemicals that are already in your brain to achieve better behavioral health outcomes? And so that ecosystem for us is currently comprised of a mobile app. Let's not even call it a full product. Let's call it an experiment, okay? a meaningful experiment. The second experiment that we're releasing on Tuesday, April 2nd, is an audio program. And Kristen Scott Thomas is the voice of it. Devendra Banhart has produced an entirely original musical score. J.D. Sampson has helped with curation efforts. There's been a whole host of people that have participated. And those are going to be a format that I call pill casting. Everyone knows what podcasting is. It's this, right? It's segments of 60 to 90 minutes. Pill casting is a series of 60 to 90 second segments that are organized by mood type and correspondingly by drug category. And let's see what you think. The third product that we're releasing in mid-April are the Mood Rise 1000 Awards, which are uh, the most nutritious the most nutritious pieces of content available across the four major platforms. There are others, right? It's not going to be totally comprehensive. It's selective, but you got to start somewhere. So we're starting with Netflix, Hulu, forgive me, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Vimeo, and YouTube. And so these can be things that you self-dose or enjoy to alter your mood whenever you so see fit. And the choices were made using a combination of data and human curation, right? Taste does have to factor into the mix. Uh, we're going to release a mood tracker for your Apple Watch in May. And then what you'll find as we evolve into the summer is a digital nutrition labeling tool for other people's content. So this can begin to establish a new a threshold for you know, transparency in the realm of digital media. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a lot going on. Well, it's one thing at a time, right? I mean, how did I'm reminded sometimes of you know Matt Damon in the movie? You might not like Matt Damon, but you know, in the movie The Martian, when he's trapped or abandoned and left behind on Mars, and how does he get home? He had to focus on performing one operation at a time, mm-hmm. and if he got enough operations right, he earned a ticket home. And that's you know the same thing that you get with every single startup. You got to wake up every goddamn day, and with furor and focus uh, and belief and optimism and love, and hope that you get enough things right that you get the opportunity to continue to fight the next day. Right? And it doesn't matter how big you get, it doesn't matter how much money you raise, it doesn't matter how much media you earn, you just got to keep doing the right thing a day after a day after a day, and never give up. There will always be a way. Yeah. Um, so so what would, you know, I mean, if, some, if someone's new to Mood Rise, I mean, how, how yeah. do you, to put it in a nutshell, you know, in terms of first access, first first 
point of contact for people just discovering it. Yeah. How would you how would you put that? Uh, go to the App Store for iOS or Android. Look for Mood Rise by ABZ Labs. Download it. It's a very simple tutorial showing you what we're doing. There are six mood states that you can try and pursue. You know, one is happiness, as uh, supported by serotonin. There's calm, supported by or correlated with GABA. Uh, Self-confidence, dopamine. Focus, acetylcholine. Connection, which we call love, oxytocin. And you can begin to go through some of these modules, which are relatively short segments of mostly video content, some interactive. Um, and I would compare it to taking, you know, it's the beginning of a new supplement regimen, right? Like, do you get high when you take fish oil? Not unless something is very strange with your physiology. <laughs> okay. But over time, you know, it can have, it can make a dent and a difference in terms of your mood. I mean, I know that if I don't get enough exposure, which is very commonly the case, to sun here in the United Kingdom, my mood plummets because my vitamin D levels will drop. I notice a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, just taking a vitamin D supplement sometimes isn't sufficient, but if it's paired with, you know, seasonal affective disorder light and you know, sufficient uh, weekly provisions of exercise, you know, you can you can fight the blues. Well, actually, in this case, blue is a blue sky, but you know what I'm saying. You know, the darker days can be staved off and countered with purposeful practice. And this is using content in the same way that we would use other types or measures of uh, a physical product and very typically food or vitamins. Same idea, but with purely digital content interactions. And personally speaking, you know, you, you said you suffered yourself uh, with mental health yeah. issues over the years. What a wonderful idea it must be to think that not only can you provide directly through the app ways of people to 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 live healthier in this respect, but also that they may learn about you know the dopamine and the oxytocin and and these things that are going on in our body already and learn to to manage them and understand the way they may be feeling and how it's related to that. That's you know there needs some pretty fundamental changes for people's uh, understanding of themselves and these these drugs. Uh, violent agreement. But I would also urge caution that, you know, our social awareness will evolve and change. The scientific consensus around these areas will continue to shift and likely improve, right? It's not a linear, uh, it's not a linear process, either by x-axis, y-axis, or z, by which I mean time. Um, you know, we hurdle imperfectly forward. And I, I, I'm inclined to borrow a principle from IDEO, which is, uh, a place I spent quite a few years and still adore and uh, and love, which is that you have to fail early, you have to fail often, and you have to fail forward, right? You know, we were joking around, you and I, at the beginning of the call, that what did we miss? Uh, <laughs> what did we hopelessly miss? Landlines. They're much more reliable than Skype, even after all of these years, right? <laughs> and what, what I miss is Alexander Graham Bell. You know, he was asked once, how did you invent the telephone? He said, well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't Graham Bell, it was because uh, now I'm confusing the issue. Edison with a light bulb. He said, I just figured out how 900 some odd different ways not to invent a light bulb. You know, and the good news here is that typically when it comes to behavioral health drugs, it takes 10 years on average at minimum and approximately two and a half billion dollars to bring a new behavioral health drug to market. And people wrestle mightily with finding their own right fit. We're trying to develop similar therapies at one ten thousandth of the cost and one-tenth of the period of time with no known side effects. Now, let's be fair. The benefits and dividends might also be different. 
But if this can become, uh, in fact, prominently into life practices that you engage in already to maintain or support mental health and well-being, which included an old, uh, 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 the risk of sounding repetitive, diet, sleep, exercise, interpersonal relationships, and purpose, then you're beginning to get something right, right? And so if this can reciprocally enhance those other areas of your life, um, then we're really doing something right. But the goal ultimately is, and, and, this is, and we're years away from it, but the goal is to have an entire suite of products, not just an ecosystem, but a, a veritable drug shelf of remedies and therapies that work. Mm. That's what we're working on every single day. That's a fascinating concept. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, in, as we, it's consistent with all these stories, often the mind behind that or the person who sees that idea is someone who's either suffered greatly or lived to a strong degree, you know, that experience. Um, I guess it takes that sometimes to arrive at these these places, these ideas, but it's truly inspiring, in my opinion. Or they die before they're recognized in the <laughs> Yeah. But, but, you know, but at least they got the validation someday, right? Yeah. Even if it was posthumous. Yeah. My but, God. Right, but candidly, candidly, I don't care about the credit. I care about outcomes, right? And so we've really been blessed, we've really been fortunate that a lot of people have been participating in this effort. This is not a Michael Moskowitz project. Right. This is a team effort, and that's inclusive of the people who work on it daily. It's inclusive of the advisors. It's inclusive of the scientific advisory board. It's inclusive of our investors. Uh, it's remarkable how many people want to help accelerate this mission. And I, I even say that we have a lot to thank Common Headspace for. Right? They have blazed a trail. This would have been an impossible idea, and uh, uh, we wouldn't have been able to suffer the indignity of rebuke and ridicule five years ago if we'd been trying to do this. So, uh, anything is possible if, if you get enough. If you if, if you widen the aperture of support, mm. right? And so that's all I'm hoping to do with calls like this and relationships with people like you is let's get everyone on the same page that we're committed to doing something, right? And with greater resource and more experimentation and accountability and radical transparency, we can realize this ambition. But it's not going to be done by any one person or party. It's going to be done by large groups of people in a manner more reminiscent of NASA than early days of PayPal. Yeah, I can completely It certainly has that feel. And it's funny because I mean we mentioned we mentioned earlier about you know the, the the knee jerk response almost my own in terms of this burnout you know period and putting the phone down and we we like you said we laughed about the landline thing, but the truth is we we we're not going back we're not this digital consumption thing right. isn't going away because this is now the way that the the world kind of works at least yeah. developed Western civilization, um so you know this is very much about curation as opposed to just walking away isn't it it's about management. I, I just I can't point to an example of a drug-free society ever in the history of mankind. Okay? Mm -hmm. I can scarcely point to an example in, a, in the contemporary world of where abstinence-only training works. It doesn't work with sexual and reproductive health. It doesn't work with uh, drug policy, you know, of illicit drugs. Uh, it doesn't work with our relationship with technology. I mean, if you have the self-discipline to be truly like a technical, an orthodox tech vegan and to abstain from all implements and instruments of tech, great, good for you. But, but that's not relevant for most people. We have to meet people where they are. And so uh, there is no one solution here. There's no one size fits all. We're trying to get better at, at creating sort of solutions and remedies that are applicable and helpful at the population level. 
but it starts by kindling small fires, right, and finding solutions that work for that, that work legitimately, demonstrably, and repeatedly for smaller groups of people, and then you can scale. And so, for us, our focus at the moment is on the U.S. Air Force, with whom we newly have a contract. I think that's an, an enormously important credentialing mechanism and partner in this pursuit. Um, there's some other very well-known corporates that I'll have the liberty of announcing in the next couple of weeks, several of them in the entertainment industry. Uh, and I think we need to continue running meaningful experiments. Right? I don't want to make any bold-faced, sweeping, authoritative claims. I have to set reasonable expectations. We're experimenting our way to success. Right? This is a hard problem. No one has cracked it yet. And I don't think that there's going to be a single person that emerges the winner. I think several parties will be able to be very successful. Right? I mean, let's just look at pharma. You might not like pharma, but just as an example, there are many multi-billion-dollar market cap companies that are competing very narrowly for type two diabetes treatment or management and cancer-fighting therapies, excluding all other areas of human health. There's still a lot of room. And I'd say that for here, you know, we're talking about the leading public health issue of our age. There's a lot of room. There are a lot of different tools, and there are many different techniques. No one person is going to emerge the dauphin or king or hereditary ruler. There isn't going to be a Mark Zuckerberg in the space. I hope. I really hope not, because that, that has risks and perils of its own. I want there to be a lot of different winners, and I want it to be done on a consensual basis, you know, with the right mix of you know, market motivation and uh, you know, deeper interpersonal human virtue. God, I'm just kind of very excited to see where where things go for you because this is you know this the one great thing about doing this show is God, my God, the learning and the people I get to speak to and uh, and, and this is exactly goes back to exactly what you said. It's about all these partnerships and about about spreading the word and about raising this awareness, which is a great way to do this. You know, I, I come away from these things thinking, oh my God, like you know, I, I, I didn't when I signed up for an illustration degree. It's certainly what I wasn't what I had in mind, <laughs> but. You know, it's the way the world's gone, and it's 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 a joy that I have these opportunities. Um, and I guess it goes back to what you're saying about the the fact that good health can be promoted through this through through digital consumption. It's a piece of it. It's not the only thing. It's mm-hmm. not the authoritative thing, but it it factors prominently in the equation. And we need to start taking it seriously. Mm. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm going to wrap this up with the last question. Um, I call it the shark in the tank, which is uh, it's a love-hate question, and it's a very playful, all serious, whatever, sure. you, whatever you want it to be. I ask for a, a love and a hate or a positive and a negative within your creativity, within your world and your work. Oh, uh, my God. On the spot, let me think. <laughs> uh, uh, I love a good joke. <laughs> okay i <laughs> what do i hate have you got any good uh, jokes have you got any good jokes for us i have a terrible joke for you which is a little girl is crying inconsolably because she lost her very best friend and lifelong companion her family dog and her parents are trying to say something to provide consolation and so they say jessica we're devastated too jojo is like a member of the family but you have to understand she was old she was very sick and she was in a great deal of pain and now she's in a better place she's in heaven with god and a little girl is confused and crinkles up her face and asks what would god want with a dead dog <laughs> so what do i hate uh i hate skype i really <laughs> really hate skype it's, it's pretty but it doesn't work <laughs> 
it could be a good case study for the work you're doing. I mean, the, the, the very few areas of the internet give me the amount of stress that Skype does. <laughs> oh it's, it's they should just rename it Surus because it's nothing but existential dread, frustration, and pain. It's like a it, it, it's a prodigious bowl of sadness and disappointment. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Sorry, Skype. You know, sorry. I know. I don't. I don't mean to be casting aspersions, but we you know, let, let, let's let's commit to doing better. <laughs> Great answer. Well, that's been an absolute joy, Michael, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I really, am, I'm terrifically grateful, and um, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much to Michael for taking the time to sit down and get under the skin of digital nutrition uh, and what we're consuming and the impacts it has and, and mood rise his answer to that and the steps he wants to take in the future to to stay on top of it and to, to adapt to all this this 12 hours a day of what we're taking into our minds it's really quite fascinating worrying exciting at the same time get us your feedback at arrest or mimics let us know your thoughts go back and check out the pricing creativity special episode if you didn't get that and any of the archive because we're going to take a little three-week break now i've been throwing these episodes at you thick and fast from sean Ryder to Walt thomas to mood rise and michael phillips moskowitz um pricing creativity with blair ends it's been intense here's your chance to catch up i hope you're enjoying the show as ever please do get me feedback what would you like to see changed what don't you like what do you like who would you like to see on the show it's all welcome i'm always listening always open for creative criticism constructive criticism i should say um but thank you so much get us at the rest on the mix on social media big thank you to the sponsors illustrationweb.com heartinternet.co.uk filecore.co.uk and theaoi.com have a wonderful week Uh, looking forward to your feedback on this one nice one guys take care see you soon